This was such a trauma for everyone. It was like a battlefield setting or situation. Heather Gurdy ran down the stairs trying not to fall. We were like, we have failed, I guess, to, to, to do what we need to do, what we want to do through no fault of our own. Then out the door and into the ambulance, and the ambulance took off right away. It was important at that point that for Ambassador Dubs, for his family, and for the nation of the United States, that we have his remains and we get attended to, taken care of with reverence and respect. It was terrible for all, uh, everybody connected with the embassy, in part because the ambassador is He's more than a father figure to everybody in embassy. He's the top official, the president's personal representative. And to have anything happen to him is a shock to all of us. Because Spike Dubs, Ambassador Dubs, loved Afghans, loved Afghanistan. And he really worked hard because he understood Russia. He had served there in Moscow. And he wanted to make things right and to help everybody to do uh, what was going to be in the interest, especially of the Afghan people, to do this. So uh, he was a great caretaker, he was a great caregiver, and he had the potential to do great and wondrous things in that moment of time, but it was all taken away. Valentine's Day, 1979. Spike Dubs is killed in an armed assault on the Kabul hotel room where he was held captive. Purportedly a rescue attempt, it was a storm of machine gun fire, unleashed on command of Soviet KGB officers. There was so much gunfire, one witness said, a housefly in room 117 would have been hit. In the aftermath, only questions. Who were the kidnappers? Why did they not communicate any demands to U.S. officials? Spike was one of Washington's top Russia specialists. Did that figure into his killing? And what about the U.S.-educated Afghan communist foreign minister, Amin? Spike had met with him more than a dozen times, yet Amin refused even to speak with Spike's deputies, who were desperate for the regime's help to free their ambassador. Within hours, the Americans started searching for answers, but they did so in an atmosphere of grief and shock, of trauma. Hours after helping carry Spike's body from the scene, DEA officer Doug Wankel headed home to his wife Marilyn. There was just an aura of shock. It was bad. I remember going home that evening. Uh, my wife and I uh, had scheduled a, I mean, keep in mind, this is, uh, this is Valentine's Day. So we had a big party scheduled that night at our house. Uh, and, of course, that had been canceled. And so I'm sitting there amongst all the food and, and the cake. And just, uh, it, it was an air of uh, despair and despondency that I had never experienced. It, that obviously was the worst day of my life to that point and to this point today. Consul Mike Malinowski's wife, Karen, followed the emergency from their house nearby in the Afghan capital. Well, she was at home. She heard the security radios going on, so she knew something was going on. And then she actually heard the gunfire. And then she, you know, she knew that something was terrible. And I had gotten a lot of blood on my shirt. So uh, the fellow was working with me in, as a vice counselor. I asked him to take my shirt home and bring me another fresh shirt, which he did. And of course, when he gave my shirt to his, my wife, she got really uh, worried. And he explained that I was fine, uh, but just needed a clean shirt. Mike had another duty that Valentine's evening. The Afghan regime asked U.S. embassy officials if they cared to inspect the bodies of the dead kidnappers. Mike went with colleagues to the military hospital. They were shown to the morgue. A gruesome scene awaited them, and a puzzling one. At the time the ambassador was taken, 
the driver said that there were four Afghans in Afghan police uniforms that had grabbed the ambassador. Now at the hotel, we saw the one fellow who was very much alive and then the two dead Afghans in the ambassador's hotel room. So that adds up to three. Now later that evening, we were all taken to the uh, morgue and on the, the marble slabs were four bodies. Two of the fellows, I would imagine the ones we had seen at the hotel in the hotel room dead, and then another fellow who was the fellow who had been captured by the uh, hotel personnel, and he was on the slab, and his head looked like a golf ball. Now, people who know these things told me that that might have been an indication that he was killed with a, a shot to his head or brain because apparently the, the gases or air in the brain expand at a different time, and it leaves a dimpled effect on the skull. But this was the man that you'd seen alive. Yeah, very much alive, yes. And then there was a fourth body on the slab, and I don't know where they uh, got him, but there were supposedly four kidnappers, and now there were four dead. And what did the Afghan regime authorities tell you these four people were? They were the ones who had kidnapped the ambassador. They didn't give us any names or uh, explanation. They did give us a report a few days later that was laughable in its brevity. For something as huge as this, it was like, I forget, but it was like a page and a half or two pages, virtually worthless. Shortly after the storming of Room 117, soldiers of the Afghan regime's army turned up at the U.S. clinic where Spike's body had been taken. They demanded the Americans turn over the corpse. It's evidence, an Afghan officer told them. They were turned away. In Washington, President Carter ordered a special flight to Kabul. The next day, Spike's body was safely retrieved and returned home. Investigators arrived from the states, including a box guy, as they were known, from the Central Intelligence Agency, a polygraph specialist. Spike's Afghan driver, Gul Muhammad, was grilled on the lie detector. He was innocent and heartbroken. Witnesses say nobody was more shaken by Spike's killing than the embassy's local hires, the Afghans, who looked up to the ambassador and who loved him. American investigators were met by an iron curtain of obstruction. The Soviets and their Afghan communist protégés refused to cooperate. Amin, the Afghan foreign minister, began rewriting history as Western journalists reached Kabul as did his secret police chief, Tarun. There were no Russians at the hotel, they insisted. Tarun personally led the rescue effort. The kidnapper's goal, they said, was the release from prison of, quote, an extreme leftist adventurist, Bahruddin Bahes. There's never been any proof this part of the official story is anything more than pure invention. I've spoken with the ranking CIA officer at the time, he has asked not to be named for reasons unconnected with this case. For six months after Spike's murder, he and his men tried to turn up clues. Two months in, an agent they were running in Afghanistan's national police got the case file. It was empty, swept clean of evidence and names, logs, and analysis. Nothing remained. Nothing even to show what the cops' guesses were about the kidnappers' identities and what they were after. The Americans wondered. Who benefited from Spike's death? Circumstantial cases could be made against the regime or the Soviets, but so could counter-arguments to those theories. Doug Wankel reached his own conclusion, and it's a view held by other American witnesses and officials. 
when the Russians did what they did as far as ordering the Afghans to take the room and rescue the ambassador, I don't believe the Russians had necessarily thought this thing through and thought it would end up in the death of the ambassador. I think it didn't matter to them. What they wanted was this situation, this event to be over. And if they could do it and the ambassador came out okay, that'd be great. If they did it and the ambassador ended up as he did, dead at the hands of uh, the police and whomever else, that's okay too. The event needed to be over with, the situation needed to be resolved so that they could take care of any potential fallout at that time. So was it just callous disregard for Spike's life, recklessness by the Soviets and by the regime, the DRA, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan? After a year-long investigation, the U.S. State Department's special security team produced their findings, 18 pages with virtually no answers, as these highlights tell us. It should be noted, this investigation was severely hampered by the unwillingness of Afghan police and security officials to provide even basic investigative data. American officials repeatedly urged that no action be taken which could endanger the life of Ambassador Dubbs and stressed the need for patient negotiation with the terrorists. The embassy was unable to determine the terrorist demands the Afghan government's plan of action and other an American officer observed an individual he was certain to be a Soviet official exiting the office of the Afghan official believed to be in charge of the operation, police commandant Tarun. At the Kabul Hotel, one Soviet was observed assisting an Afghan security official with the loading of a weapon. Another Soviet was observed providing an Afghan official with what appeared to be a small projectile, and two Soviets were observed positioning snipers on balconies across the street from the hotel room. To date, no terrorist organization or dissident group has come forward to claim responsibility for the kidnapping and killing of Ambassador Dubbs. Conclusion the account of the ambassador's death as provided by the DRA is incomplete, misleading, and inaccurate. Sufficient evidence has been obtained to establish serious misrepresentation or suppression of the truth by the government. Consequently, the following significant questions surrounding the circumstances of Ambassador Dubbs' death remain unanswered. Why was the ambassador the target of the kidnapping? Who were his abductors? Who did they represent? What were their demands? Why did the DRA assault the room where the ambassador was held? Who fired the weapons which resulted in the ambassador's death, especially the unidentified 22 caliber weapon? Why has the DRA refused to allow U.S. government officials to examine weapons? Why was at least one of the terrorists killed by the DRA authorities while in captivity? What information, if any, did he provide? before his death. What were the circumstances regarding the death of the fourth terrorist? Was this individual actually one of the ambassador's abductors? What was the involvement of the Soviets in the decision-making process? Why has the DRA provided incomplete, misleading, and inaccurate information to the U.S. government? It has been 39 years since that report was released. In all this time, not a single one of those questions has been answered. That's troubling even haunting for the people touched by this crime, especially for Spike's daughter, Lindsay Dubbs McLaughlin. We've heard how close she was to her father, how she spent Christmas with him in Kabul just weeks before that black Valentine's Day. I asked Lindsay if her father gave her the feeling he understood the risks in Afghanistan. 
if he realized the country was nearing critical mass, just as he was posted there. You know, he was a very humble kind of person. So he had a lot of that quality with him. So he wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I'm at this very crucial crossroads place at this very important time in history. And it's, that wasn't his way. But I did have a sense that he was intent. He was serious. And in retrospect, I see why, you know, he happened to be in Afghanistan at that point in time. And he was, you know, he was doing his very best to make those connections with the, you know, with the Afghan government and people in order to lessen the influence of the, of the Soviets at that time. Did anyone then has anyone ever been able to give you a satisfactory explanation of what happened? Uh, no. The most we could, you know, we figured out afterwards were, you know, reports that I guess the State Department did and other people did, and basically what they concluded was, we don't know, you know, we don't know whether these kidnappers were, you know, what their demands were. They never expressed any, they had an opportunity to express any demands. We're not sure what happened. The whole situation of the Soviet advisors and the, you know, very confusing situation, I think Time Magazine did an article right after that, and they had, like, diagram of the room, and they had all this stuff. And basically, you know, they said, inconclusive, we don't know. Did it strike you that there should be an answer? Did you <laughs> yearn for an answer? Uh, yes, it struck me that, you know, with all of that, you know, the Soviet advisors were, were apparently on the scene. Soviets were on the scene. Americans were on the scene, although they the Americans seemed so... Uh, they seemed like they were so constrained and restricted in that situation, and perhaps there should be an answer. So on one level, I, I have to be honest with you, on one level, I yes, you know, there, we should be able to figure this out. On another level, part of my attitude is, and when I came out of this, is that there's violence all over, and sometimes violence doesn't have, there's not an answer. Sometimes it just... It just is. And, you know, if you want to work through the kind of grieving work that's necessary, perhaps it's more healing, not necessarily to go searching for answers of specifics, but to work on this sense that a lot of times the world does not make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Sometimes there are forces at work ensuring events do not make sense. During the Cold War, world powers often resorted to intentional varieties of not making sense. In espionage, this comes from a toolkit known as disinformation, smokescreens, official lies, cover-ups. This is the dead end awaiting anyone revisiting the murder of Spike Dubbs. Thing is, this particular dark Cold War alleyway is not without clues. Maybe not physical evidence as yet, but a form of fingerprints all the same. Think back to Consul Mike Malinowski's account of the storming of Room 117, the assault. No one in that hotel room survived. When did all the shooting start? It began as soon as the Soviet officer waved his white handkerchief. You're saying a Soviet officer? Yes, directed the fire and directed the rushing of the hotel room. Sergei Bakhtarin. As I learned later, Sergei Bakhtarin. Yes. signaled the start of the signaled assault. the start of the operation. Not an Afghan officer. No, no, no. A Soviet officer. Oh, yeah. The Soviets were now totally in operational command of the units there at the hotel. 
40 years on, we go in search of Lieutenant Colonel Sergei Gavrilovich Bakhtarin, born 1932, KGB codename Volgan. We know this from the works of a KGB archivist who defected to Britain in 1992, Vasily Mitrokin. Bakhtarin is not an easy man to find. I contacted sources in Moscow familiar with the intelligence scene, past and present. First, I was told there was no trace of the man. Another approach led to claims he died some years ago. Finally, after weeks of searching, a third attempt led to sources who located Sergei Bakhtarin. Now 86, living in Moscow. He refused to meet a Western journalist, but he agreed to speak to a Russian reporter. The rendezvous, he declared, would be in a Moscow metro station underground, in public. His choice of setting for the interview, a fast food restaurant. Bakhtarin's translation is spoken by a professional voice artist. I am first and foremost a soldier. In Kabul, I was first and foremost a security officer and secondly an assistant ambassador. Regarding everything that concerns security, I must directly obey the boss in Moscow not the head of the mission in Kabul. And this was generally perceived and understood with no problem, because such orders usually came behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, because Bakhtarin's bosses were in Lubyanka Square, KGB headquarters in Moscow. His top boss was the Soviet's intelligence chairman, Yuri Andropov, a future Soviet leader. The chain of command led to Bakhtarin's resident, or station chief in Kabul, Vilyov Osadji. But Bakhtarin insists it was the Afghan communist foreign minister, Amin, who was in charge of responding to Spike's kidnapping. The KGB, he says, was only there to help. There was a strategy. It was the work of our advisor to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, Klushnikov, and our security advisor. Kutupov is his last name. But the whole thing was controlled by Amin personally. Everything was under his control, and he controlled the operation. It began prematurely, in general. They were not quite ready when they began to act. But they were no longer listening to us. They listened to their own orders. We know that Klushnikov and Kutupov were at the hotel. They were seen by the Americans, and they're in the archive of the KGB defector, Matrokin, who read and copied cables about the incident between Moscow and Kabul. But as to who signaled the assault on Room 117 to begin... Bakhtarin's story conflicts with the Americans' accounts. Understand, the order to shoot was given by the Afghans. The Afghans acted on their plan. In the same way, the terrorists acted after being kept waiting for a long time. It was not the result of cowardly, wrong actions. We silent observers were also there at the same time. And the final word was, the Afghans for their security service. They determined it. Throughout two interviews, Bakhtarin, the silent observer, minimized his role in the affair. Our expert was there, Alexander Klushnikov. He was the security advisor for the Afghan Ministry of Internal Affairs. Therefore, with his help, the Ministry of Internal Affairs planned the operation. And since our people, Soviet citizens, were staying in the hotel, we had to go there. Of course, we have to take experience into account. 
the Afghans had not often dealt with a case like this. They somehow wanted to present them a solution on a blue platter. That would be awesome, of course. But this is the problem. When the process had already begun, it is tough. I confirm there was a man standing near Dubs who held a pistol, they say, at his temple. Bakhtarin doesn't say how he knew someone held a pistol to Spike's head, or why troops would storm into a room when a hostage was at point-blank peril. He says he and his KGB colleagues helped prepare the Afghan assault troops. Of course, they demanded that we provide ammunition, which was fired from the machine guns. But when the door was forced, a German Schmeitzer was not our weapon. This means that the Americans supplied the weapons from which the shots were fired. What they wanted to prove with this is hard to say. A Schmeiser submachine gun, or MP40, was not recovered at the scene. The Americans at the hotel were unarmed. Even the Afghan regime's account of the incident makes no mention of a Schmeiser, much less receiving guns from the Americans. Inventing information at odds with the facts was not only routine for officers like Bakhtarin, it was their duty. During the Cold War, the KGB put its operatives through yearly reviews. One test? To show fully one-fifth of their time was spent creating false stories, libels, and other disinformation, all to confuse and weaken adversaries. Bakhtarin led a storied career in the KGB. In Afghanistan, he was personally commended by Chairman Yuri Andropov. His status in retirement made him a founding member of a group called Veterans of Foreign Intelligence. It's not just a club for retired Russian spies. Formed in 2002, Veterans is linked to a nationalist group called Dignity and Honor. From the start, the Dignity and Honor veterans have been outspoken supporters of President Vladimir Putin. Putin joined the KGB in 1976, a year before Bakhtarin's arrival in Afghanistan. Especially in that context, Bakhtarin's musings on motive resonate with recent examples of Russian spycraft. He poses lurid suspicions over Spike's murder, conjures a specter of conspiracy. But the fact is that the matter itself is dark. How and why there was such a conspiracy, and uh, for what? Because the explanation could be the double game of Amin. Because with his blessing, by his order, the head of the Afghan security service at that time, Tarun, was there to hold some kind of measure against the Americans for not aligning with Amin. Therefore, it pushed Amin to do something that was necessary in some way, a way I don't understand. It may even be that he was afraid that the dubs might reveal his connections to the Americans. There was such a flirtation going on at that time. The Americans were betting on it. Spike and the U.S. in a flirtation with Amin? With Tarun as a middleman? These hints of conspiracy between the U.S. and Amin are spelled out in a book about the Soviet war in Afghanistan, a book Bakhtarin directed us to for answers. It's titled Virus A, How We Caught the Disease of Intervening in Afghanistan. In a lengthy section about Spike, Virus A claims Tarun was in charge at the hotel, not Bakhtarin and his comrades. 
and that Tarun valiantly entered room 117 and personally finished off two kidnappers. The book also claims Spike was a CIA operative. Bakhtarin's residence boss in Kabul, Osadji, even alleges Dubs visited the Hotel Kabul the day before his kidnapping in the company of Afghans resembling his captors. Why would Bakhtarin recommend such a book? The footnotes explain. He's credited as a source, a contributor to the narrative. From the start, the accounts by the Russians and the Afghan regime had much in common. I put two key elements of those storylines to Spike's consul, Mike Malinowski. First, that the regime's police strongman, Tarun, was in command at the Hotel Kabul. Yeah, well, that is a lie. Again, I know Tarun. I had to deal with him professionally, uh, very unpleasant experiences with him. But we also had two of our embassy officers sitting outside of Tarun's office, trying to get to see him unsuccessfully. And while Tarun was in his office, I believe there was a Soviet who came in to see him. But Tarun continually refused to see our two officers, who again were sitting right outside of his main office. They were in his office when they heard the gunfire from the hotel, so they could testify that he was in his office the entire time. As the Afghan and Soviet authorities begin with these stories, these accounts for what happened, eventually the Soviets began to say that, well, actually Ambassador Dubbs was a CIA officer. No, they knew damn well that he was the Foreign Service officer for the Department of State. You know, the Soviets don't knew that. There was never any suggestion no, that Adolf Dubbs was a CIA officer. No, he was a State Department officer who rose to the position of being ambassador to Afghanistan and charge at in Moscow. You know, in order to be uh, named ambassador, you're named by the president, your name goes to Congress, they go through committees, the Senate committee uh, brings you in front of it, and they ask you questions. And it's inconceivable that if Spike Dubbs had been, at one point, an officer of the CIA, that that would not have come up in his confirmation hearings. He's an American employee, and you don't go around killing American diplomats. You know, that is not how the world should work, or diplomacy is done. The Soviets know that as well as anyone. Is there an element of desperation to be reaching to that kind of... It's an element, I think, of cover your ass, because it was botched. And I think a lot of the KGB operations in Afghanistan were botched. We don't have to look much further along the timeline from Spike's murder for proof of that claim. Ten months after the carnage at the Hotel Kabul, KGB special troops led the December 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. They stormed the palace, slaughtering a men, by then the regime's president, along with his son and at least a hundred Afghan soldiers. Colonel Bakhtarin was commended for his role in spiriting the assault troops into Kabul prior to the attack. The assassination and mass killing was an operational triumph for the KGB, but it helped open the bleeding wound of the Soviet occupation. Nine years later, the Red Army withdrew, bloodied and beaten. At least one million Afghans died in the war by 1989. Two years later, Soviet communism collapsed. The party was over. These days, there's a concerted Russian effort to recast the Soviet misadventure in Afghanistan as a proud saga. And it turns out Sergei Bakhtarin is not alone in spinning fiction in that cause. 
In our next episode, we'll look at other Russian publications that also seek to confuse and muddle, to deflect attention and blame to others. And we'll look at two important clues, revelations by other Soviet military and intelligence veterans. See if you don't agree these admissions bring us closer to answering the question, who murdered Spike Dubs? Thank you.